The scripture we read this morning is from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. By them he is referring to the Israelites in the Old Testament, many of whom were unbelieving and therefore did not enter into the rest of Canaan. Verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Those are multiple quotes from the Old Testament, including Psalm 95. Verse 6, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts, for if Jesus, and there Jesus refers to Joshua, the son of Nun, in the Old Testament, for if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick, or living, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus far we read in the Word of God this morning. In light of that scripture reading, let us consider what the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us in Lord's Day 18. Lord's Day 18. Continuing the exposition of the Apostles' Creed, particularly that part that deals with the Son of God. Question 46 asks, 
How dost thou understand these words? He ascended into heaven. Answer, that Christ, in sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven, and that he continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. Is not Christ then with us even to the end of the world as he hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. What if his human nature is not present wherever his Godhead is? Are not then these two natures in Christ separated from one another? Not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature he assumed, and yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up to himself us, his members. Thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and not things on earth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a reason we speak in the present tense when speaking of believing in Jesus. To the unbelieving world, Jesus is just a figure from history. If he ever existed in the way the Gospels say he existed, then he was dead and buried a long time ago, and he is to be spoken of, therefore, in the past tense. But we speak of believing in Jesus in the present tense tense. Now our faith is very much rooted in history and in the past. The Jesus we believe in is a person who did great things long ago, the effects of which we still feel today. But we do not believe in a dead Jesus. We believe in a living Jesus whose eyes are open to all things, as the writer to Hebrews says. So if our faith in Jesus is to be held in the present tense, where is he today? Where is he? And that brings us up to the last recorded action that Jesus took while he was still on the earth. And that last recorded action of Jesus is that he left the earth before the watching eyes of his disciples. He left the earth and he ascended into heaven to appear before God and before the angels and the glorified saints. And there he continues to this day. This passing of Jesus into the heavens should not surprise us, knowing what Jesus did while he was still on the earth. Everything was heading in this direction from the moment Jesus was born, from the moment the voice from heaven identified that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. From the moment Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. From the moment Jesus arose from the dead victorious, everything was headed in this direction. Jesus, having finished his work, must be glorified. 
first by rising from the dead, and then by passing into the heavens. So I call our attention this morning to the Lord's Day, and the theme of the sermon is believing that Jesus is passed into the heavens. First, we will consider where it is to which he has ascended. Secondly, of what advantage is this to us, which the Lord's Day teaches in question and answer 49. And then finally, we'll conclude by noting that this is glory for Christ. And that really is the main point of the ascension, that it's glory to Christ. Believing that Jesus is passed into the heavens first, where he ascended, secondly, the advantage for us, finally, the glory for him. So Jesus was risen from the dead, and for 40 days he was on the earth and appeared to his disciples on various occasions. But then after 40 days, he passed into the heavens. And there's a historic description of that event in Acts chapter 1. We find there in Acts chapter 1, Jesus walking with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And when you read the historical account, it almost feels like the good old days have returned for the disciples. The Master is with them once again, speaking to them of God and of the things of the kingdom of heaven. And they're walking together through those places in Palestine that were familiar to them. But then as they're walking and talking, Jesus is taken up. Steadily, he rises into the heavens until he disappears behind a cloud. And there the disciples stand with their necks literally craned, looking up into the heavens at that spot where they last saw him before he disappeared. And they stand there for quite some time, gazing into the heavens until a couple of angels appear at their side and call their attention back to the earth and promise that this Jesus, whom they have seen disappear into the heavens, will return in the same way that he went. Nevertheless, he's gone. They don't see him anymore. They don't hear his voice anymore. He's gone. So where did he go? Clearly, he's somewhere. He didn't just disappear into the ether and become non-existent. Clearly, he's somewhere, and wherever he is, he's very much in tune with whatever's going on here. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, Hebrews says in verse, 14 of the, uh, verse 13 of the chapter we read. Clearly, he's somewhere, and yet, just as clearly, he's not here on this earth, but he's in another place. He has entered into his rest, we read in Hebrews 4, that true rest of which the earthly land of Canaan was only a type and a picture. He has passed into the heavens. So what does that mean? Well, it's possible to err when speaking of heaven. And it's possible to err either by speaking too little of this place into which Jesus has ascended or by speaking too much of this place into which Jesus has ascended. 
Some want to say too little about heaven. These are Christians, or maybe sometimes Christians only in name, who are really kind of sort of embarrassed about this aspect of the faith. They hear the unbelieving world in its mockery of heaven, characterizing heaven maybe as something like an eternal choir loft, which is really not a very nice place to go, kind of a boring place to go, or, or a city in the clouds, pie in the sky kind of a thing. And, and these Christians don't want to appear so unintellectual as to believe in a place like that, so they downplay it. And they don't want to talk about heaven so much. Maybe they even join in the poking fun that the unbelieving world does. I once heard a very prominent Christian teacher and leader kind of poke fun at the idea of heaven in a lecture that I attended to at one point. And he did it by comparing the Jesus who ascended bodily, visibly up into heaven to a spaceman riding in a rocket ship into the heavens. And he said, oh, I don't believe in, in the spaceman Jesus who goes up into the heavens and returns in the clouds. This strain of thinking, of downplaying and minimizing the idea of heaven as a place that believers go to in their souls and into which Jesus ascended can develop to the point where heaven becomes something that's not really even a place at all. It's little more than a nice idea. It's a nice idea to think that Jesus is up there thinking about us or watching over us. It's a nice idea to think that maybe we'll go to a better place after, when we leave this life. But what's important is not that there's actually a place called heaven. What's important is the idea of heaven and how that idea influences us and impacts us here while we're in this life. That's really where that thinking develops. When you start denying the supernatural, when you start minimizing the supernatural aspects of the faith in order to appear not so unintellectual, well, you end up destroying the, the hope of a Christian. Heaven is a nice idea. But it's a nice idea the way drugs can be a nice thing. For the hope that it gives is really only an illusion. It's really only a feeling. Which is why Karl Marx called the idea of heaven the opiate of the masses. A, a drug to keep the gullible people under, under control. That's one error, speaking too little about heaven. It's also possible to err by saying too much about heaven. This can be done in a crass way that we might be familiar with. People want to believe that in heaven we will do the kind of things there that made us happy when we are here. There's just going to be more of it, and it's going to be better. So if we love to play golf on earth, and in heaven there's going to be a great golf course, and we're going to play all kinds of golf, and we're, we're, we're always going to get par or, or, or birdies or whatever it is. Or if we enjoy a good cigar on earth, and there will be good cigars in heaven, but there's not going to be any throat cancer. 
That's a crass way of really reading into heaven the kinds of things that give us pleasure here below. And it says too much. It says more about our priorities and our interests here than it says anything about heaven. But this can be done in a refined way among Christians who maybe have a little more spiritual maturity as well. We love to have those late night conversations perhaps about heaven and what's it going to be like. And sometimes as we speculate about heaven, our speculations turn into certainties. In heaven, we will not remember anymore the things that we experience in this life because that might bring suffering into heaven through our memories In heaven, we're not going to care about the things that are going on down here below because that would draw our attention to things that really don't concern our life in heaven. In heaven, it will be this way, we speak dogmatically. Or in heaven, it will be that way. And the truth is, it's not wrong to speculate based off of some of the clues that the Bible gives us, but there's so much about heaven that we don't know. And we're not going to know until we get there. And we ought to be careful about saying too much. What we can say is that heaven is a real place. It's a real place. It's not just a nice idea to calm down the gullible masses, as Marx said, and to keep them under control. It's not just a psychedelic experience that you can have by taking hallucinogenic drugs, which is an idea that has been growing in popularity among some nowadays. Heaven is not a dream world that people go to and under anesthesia on the operating table. It's a place. There's angels in that place. Thousands upon thousands of bright and glorious angels. There are the souls of the triumphant saints in that place who cry out day and night to the living God. It's a place into which Jesus bodily and visibly passed as that cloud hid him from the view of the disciples. One moment, he was in the sphere of this earth, of this universe, of this place. The next moment, he was in heaven. Heaven is a place. If you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, if you believe in the Jesus who rose from the dead, in the Jesus who ascended, into heaven, you believe that heaven is a real place. But it's a spiritual place. It's not like any place we've ever been to or experienced down here. It's a place where earthly pleasures like golf and cigars do not have the kind of meaning that they might have here. It's not a place that would entirely make sense to us if we were to go there as we are now in our earthly bodies with our earthly minds and our earthly priorities. It's not a place of this world. It's heaven. And Jesus did not get there by traveling millions and millions of light years across the universe. You could not have followed him by traveling in a spaceship, even if you are in that spaceship for years and years of your life. You cannot follow him by using any earthly means. You have to be taken there by God. And that's what happened to Jesus. He passed into the heavens as God took him up. God the Father opened the way for his victorious son in his resurrection body to enter into his rest. He passed into the heavens as the book of Hebrews declares in the passage we read this morning. 
That's where he is today, in heaven. Just as important as it is to be clear about where Jesus ascended, it's important to understand what happened to Jesus himself as he ascended into the heavens. He went from this life, from this sphere, this earthly realm, to the heavenly realm. There was a change in location. But what happened to Jesus himself as that change in location took place? And what happened is he stayed the way that he was. It's that simple. He stayed the way that he was. He went into heaven with the same glorified risen body with which he came out of the tomb on the third day. The body that ascended into heaven was not merely the, the body and the human nature of Jesus that was born from the Virgin Mary. It was not the weak and broken body that had hung dead on the cross before it was buried. It was the body and soul of Jesus as it had been changed, as it had been glorified, as it had been made new for heavenly life coming out of the tomb. And yet it was Jesus in his glorified body who went up and passed into the heavens. It was Jesus with his real human soul and his real human body and his real human emotions and his real human memories. It was the same Jesus that the disciples had been walking with and talking with moments before he passed into the heavens. It was the same Jesus that the disciples could have reached out and touched him and felt that he was solid to the touch. It was the same Jesus that they could see and they could hear his voice. That did not change when Jesus passed out of their sight and he entered into glory. And that has not changed since then. Jesus remains, according to question and answer 48, in this human nature and personally united to it. And that human nature of Christ now is in heaven. Now, that might seem obvious. It might seem like a strange thing to emphasize and to make a point of this morning. You might be thinking, well, of course, Jesus is in heaven in his human nature. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates otherwise. And this is how we've always been told the story of Jesus' ascension since the time that we were children. He went up. The disciples watched him. They saw his real substantive body go up until it disappeared behind that cloud. However, this simple truth is not taught in some churches and by some traditions. And this is really the main issue that divides Orthodox Lutheran Christians from the Reformed, going all the way back to the Reformation. Why is there a Lutheran church and why is there a Reformed church? It goes back to this issue. Martin Luther was so insistent that Jesus is bodily present in some sense in the Lord's Supper that it affected his view of other things, and specifically it affected his view of the ascension. And out of a controversy that had to do with the nature of the Lord's Supper developed what is called the doctrine of the ubiquity of Christ's human nature. The ubiquity of Christ's human nature. Ubiquity means everywhere or everywhere present. 
And that, according to the Lutheran tradition, is how Jesus can be bodily present in the elements of the Lord's Supper because he is bodily present everywhere. His human nature, body and soul, is ubiquitous, omnipresent. And in the Lutheran mind, this is what Jesus meant when he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He meant there's going to be a change When he ascended into heaven, there will be a change in his human nature so that his human nature, which when it was on earth was in one place at one time, walking and talking with the disciples, will now become everywhere present. And Jesus in his human nature now, not in his divine nature, but in his human nature, body and soul will be everywhere present until the end of the world. In the Reformed Church, we don't believe that. We, don't believe, we believe that Jesus is passed into the heavens in his glorified human nature. We believe that this human nature remains human. That is, limited to time and place, not ubiquitous. And we believe that as such, in a limited human nature, Jesus continues in heaven for our interest until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. That's the truth that the Lord's Day is communicating as to where Jesus is ascended and what that ascension means for him. Body and soul, he has been passed into the heavens. Now, of what advantage is this to us? Why does this matter? Why should we know this and meditate on this, practically speaking? In question and answer 49 gives us three advantages that we're going to take in reverse order. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? The answer given here is that first, he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he as the head will also take up us to himself, his members, And thirdly, that he sends us his spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God and not the things on the earth. So one of the advantages to us is that by passing into the heavens, Jesus makes us more heavenly minded. And that is because when you think about Jesus' bodily ascension, you can't help but look up. On a clear day when there's a blue sky, you might look up and you might wonder, what was that like? What was that like for the disciples who saw it? Who stood there with their necks craned, looking up into the blue sky as Jesus rose higher and higher and higher until his physical form was obscured from view by that cloud. How long were they standing there in silence, amazed until those angels appeared by their side calling their attention back down to the earth. And that thought of the ascension of Christ gives way to the whole idea of heaven itself and and leads us to ask the questions that we've been asking this morning. Where is he now? He was here on earth. He was walking and talking with men. He died. He was buried. And yet there's no tomb on this earth that holds his bones. Where is he? And which of the saints... 
have the privilege of being seated at his feet at this moment to hear the sound of his voice. What does he tell those saints when he speaks to them? It makes us think of heaven. There's an old saying that if you are too heavenly minded, then you will be of no earthly good. And I suppose if a man does not really have the right idea of heaven, that statement could be true. That is, if being heavenly minded means holding yourself up in a monastery or closing yourself off in a community somewhere and having a world flight mentality, then that statement might have some merit. The only problem is the monks in a monastery and those who have that world flight mentality don't really have a right idea of heaven. So they're not really heavenly minded in the right sense of the term. The one who believes that Jesus is passed into the heavens, however, and understands what heaven is and the implications of this very naturally is going to become heavenly minded. And though he lives here on the earth and he makes himself busy here on the earth and he does not have a world flight mentality, nevertheless he's going to find over the course of his life that as he thinks of Christ dwelling there at the right hand of God, he's not going to be so interested with the things of this life. And the longer he's here, the less he's going to be interested in the things of this life. And he's going to say things like, oh, what does it matter who won the football game yesterday? What does it matter ultimately what the, how the stock market's doing? Or how the economy is doing? And he's going to seek the things which are above, where Christ dwells at the right hand of God, not the things here on earth. And his heavenly mindedness isn't going to be sort of a pie in the sky mentality, but it's going to be a Christ mindedness. Thinking of heaven is thinking of Christ. That's where his heart is, that's where his mind is. Not because he's naturally that way, not because he exerts a great deal of willpower to be that way, but because the ascended. Jesus Christ from his place in heaven has poured out his spirit. From his place in heaven, the, ascend, the ascended Jesus Christ reaches down to his people on earth and gives unto them the spirit as an earnest. And by the spirit, our minds and our hearts are naturally pulled up to the master who is in heaven. And the amazing thing is that this actually makes the believer of greater earthly good. It's not that the more heavenly minded you are, the less earthly good you are. The truth is, the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. The more you are filled with the Spirit, the more you are conscious of your citizenship in heaven, the more your mind is up there with the ascended Christ, the more you will do what Christ himself did while he was on earth, the more your priorities will be shaped according to the priorities of Christ. The more your interests will be the interests of Christ. The more you will seek the glory of God then. The more you will seek the advance of the kingdom of God then. The more you will go after the, the good and welfare of your neighbor. So if you want to 
Grow in the Christian life, beloved. Here's my advice to you. Think deeply and think often about heaven where Christ dwells at the right hand of God and seek those things which are above. Another advantage of the ascension is that by passing into the heavens in his human nature, Jesus has made a promise to us. Maybe as we think deeply about heaven, a certain kind of fear begins to creep into our souls. And we ask ourselves, how could I ever go into a place like that? How could I ever go there? And it's not just a fear that comes out of a lack of faith as such, that our sins are forgiven or that our guilt is covered, but it's a fear that simply comes from our understanding of what we are as human beings. We're creatures of the dust. We live our lives down here below and our lives become wrapped up in the things here below, in our jobs and in our families, in the things that we eat and the things that we drink, and that's all proper. There's nothing wrong with that. We do have to mind our earthly lives here below, but when we consider how earthly our priorities are and how earthly our whole existence is, we might ask ourselves, am I even fit for a place like heaven? Being what I am, a creature of the dust, a creature of the earth earthy, how could I ever go there? It just doesn't fit. Well, Jesus says in answer to a fear like that, look at me. Look at me. I'm here. And I'm here with a real human body and a real human soul. Glorified, changed, fit for heaven, but nevertheless very much human in body and in soul. The same legs and feet that walked all over Palestine for three busy years are there in heaven now. The same face into which Martha looked through her tears after her brother Lazarus died is now there in heaven. The same voice the disciples heard preaching the Sermon on the Mount is now heard today in heaven. He's there. Jesus is in the flesh. And that serves as a pledge or a promise that one day we will go there in our real human soul that will be changed and glorified after the pattern of his real human soul that has been glorified and changed. And then one day our body will be risen from the dead and fit for heavenly life in a new heavens and a new earth. It's not too good to be true, in other words. It's not a place that's off limits to human beings. It's not merely the abode of angels and spirits. Heaven is a place where human beings can go. There is a human being there today, the ascended Jesus. That's one of the reasons it is important to take a stand against that Lutheran idea of ubiquity that might seem to us like an abstract debate for an ivory tower, but it has real practical implications. A Lutheran cannot really say what the Lord's Day says, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge, that he as the head will also take up to himself us, 
his members. There may be human flesh in heaven of a sort, according to the Lutheran, because his flesh is ubiquitous, but that flesh is not recognizable in any way as our flesh. We're not going to have a human nature that's ubiquitous, and that therefore takes away something important. It takes away something important as to the hope that we have as Christians. Christ embodies that hope as a real man who became the firstfruits of them that slept. There's such comfort in the thought that he's there in, the, in his body and in his soul in the heavens. There's comfort in the thought that when our loved ones are dying on their deathbeds, that Jesus is standing there, standing there in the flesh, preparing himself to receive them into glory. When we face the end of our lives ourselves, there's comfort in knowing that we can anticipate seeing a face, a human face, a face that we recognize. That's his pledge and his promise that where he is there, we will be in the same way that he is. But finally, the great advantage for us in the ascension is that Jesus has passed into the heavens as our great and merciful high priest. He's there, as the Lord's Day says, as our advocate in the presence of his Father. Now, when we think of that term advocate, we might almost think of that in an adversarial way. And we might think of it this way, that the Father is is the great judge who is offended and provoked by our sins, and the Son is there as a defense lawyer who convinces the judge to show us some mercy or kind of averts his attention away from our sins in order to show us mercy. But that's not the way it is. It's not an adversarial relationship. As our advocate, Jesus is also there as a priest, which means that he is on the side of God, first of all. And his purpose in being our advocate is not to defend us in a way that's at odds with the Father, but it is to draw us near to the Father and to reconcile us to the Father in love. But there's tremendous comfort in knowing this truth, that he's there as our advocate, beloved, isn't there? When you do commit a sin... And when you remember that every sin you commit is seriously offensive to God and that he casts many into hell for doing exactly the things that you and I have done with our hands and with our minds, there's comfort in knowing that we have an advocate, somebody who's going to speak for us and who's going to defend us and defend us not by convincing the Father to forget about our sins or to minimize them or to show us mercy in spite of our sins, but by pointing to himself and by pointing to the wounds, the real wounds in his real human flesh, the scars that are still there in his hands and in his feet and the gash that is still there in his side from the spear. For remember that he passed into the heavens as a lamb that was slain. But this is more than just a legal defense. He's not only there as our advocate, and he's not only there as a sacrifice or as a priest, though he's certainly all of those things, 
but he's there also as one who knows us. He's there as one who has walked the same green earth that we walk upon. He's there as one who has suffered the same things that we suffer. And he sympathizes with us, the writer to the Hebrews says. He's our great and merciful high priest. cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And it's that deep and profound sympathy that he has for our plight, beloved, that continues to motivate him, even as he's there ascended into heaven His sympathy for us continues to motivate him to speak for us every day before the Father and to defend us on the basis of his perfect sacrifice and to ensure that we always have a way to the throne of grace, a way to him and a way to our Father. That's the advantage of the ascension for us, beloved. He makes us heavenly minded by sending unto us the Spirit from on high. He He's there as a promise and as a pledge that one day we will be there in the same way that he is. And he acts as our advocate and as our merciful high priest before our Father. That's that's a great advantage for us, a great practical benefit for us as we live our lives here today. And his glory for him. All of this serves to glorify him. Keep that in mind. When you think of the ascension, the ascension is glory for Jesus. We were having a conversation in my house recently about why, why did Jesus have to go up visibly into the sky as his disciples watched? He didn't need to go up into the sky in order to get into heaven, right? It's not like he had to go up and there was a doorway that he went through into some hidden place in heaven and that the way to get there was by going up into the sky. So why did he have to rise up into the heavens? Why couldn't he have just disappeared while he was standing there talking with his disciples? Or why couldn't it have been some other way? And the answer to the question is because this was glory for him. This was glory for Christ. This was God making a statement about the victory of his son and his success and everything that he had done while here on earth. This was God saying, this one, this person is worthy to have the earth beneath his feet. And so I'm going to put the earth beneath his feet by lifting him up into the heavens. This one is worthy to rise above all men and all creatures on the earth. He's worthy to ascend into the hill of the Lord. He has a pure heart and clean hands. The ascension was not a matter of physics as such. It was the matter of God making a definitive statement about his son, Jesus Christ. And as we think about that, I want us to think about this and let this be our final thought this morning. What glorifies Jesus is what at the same time puts him in the position of loving service to God and to his people. Those two things go together. 
what glorifies Jesus, what exalts Jesus, what makes that statement of his worthiness is exactly the same thing that puts him in this position of service to God and his people. Heaven is a place of glory for Jesus, no doubt. But it's also the place he had to go in order to be able to pour out the Spirit upon his church. And it's the place that he had to go in order to be able to serve as our advocate before the Father. And it's the place he had to go in order to be able to function as our great and merciful high priest who has passed into the heavens. Even in heaven, at the height of his exaltation, beloved, he is there for you. That's the point. Not just for you as an individual, and not just for this congregation, but for you as members of the whole body, which is his body, for which he laid down his life. For you as children with the whole church of the Heavenly Father. And then also, yes, for you as individuals. He's there for you, and he continues there for your interest because he cares about you. And he thinks about you every day. And he prays for you. He ever liveth to make intercession for you. And he stands before his Father for you every day. And that's what's considered glory for Christ. When we think of glory with our human conceptions, I think we, we get a picture maybe of sitting on a throne and eating some grapes and having some servants maybe wave the palm leaves for us and everybody else exists to serve us. It's all about our ease and our pleasure and our benefit. Not so with Jesus. When Jesus thinks of glory, when Jesus thinks of rest, when Jesus thinks of being at peace, he thinks of you, his people, whom he loves with such an intense love. He thinks of being in a position in which he's able to walk with you and to bear your burdens for you. He thinks of being in such a position that he can calm your fears and he can grow you and shape you into men and women who are worthy of the name Christian and who ultimately will be glorified with the same kind of glory that he has in heaven. Remember that, beloved. And look up to him. Look up to him with amazement. Look up to him with wonder in your eyes and follow him where he leads and seek the things which are above where Christ dwells on the right hand of God. And believe in him. Believe that your Jesus, who lived for you, who suffered for you, who died for you, has also passed into the heavens. And today, you are on his heart. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for our Jesus, who is thy Son and our Lord. And we're thankful for all that he has done and accomplished and all that he still is for us today as our advocate, as that great promise that we one day will be where he is in body and in soul. 
And as the one who pours out his spirit and draws us near to him today in love and causes us to seek the things which are above, and we pray, O oh Father, that we may be mindful of him, that he may be on our, our hearts just as we are on his heart, and that we may live every day for his glory and be like him and walk in this world like him. Strengthen and bless this congregation and give us boldness in the knowledge that Jesus, our high priest, is passed into the heavens. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.